They still have the tasting room at Bush Gardens, but there's a limit of two beers. <laughs> uh, well, I'm very honored to be asked to speak today, and um, I titled my talk uh, Roadblocks on the Road to Recovery because I've been struggling with one for the past year or so. Uh, but let me do a little bit of what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Um, relating to the CME presentations this week, uh, I think I definitely had the predisposition to this disease from the very beginning. I come from a long line of crazy alcoholic women who loved alcohol and stimulants. Uh, my mother and her sister uh, were particularly fond of alcohol and diet pills, which they were able to obtain fairly readily from my unsophisticated uh, physician father who thought there was nothing wrong with prescribing diet pills. I guess most people didn't think so in the 50s. Um, and I grew up in a rather crazy alcoholic family where I was actually given sedatives at a very young age because my mother thought it wasn't good for children to get overly excited. So on Christmas Eve, for example, or before some other big event, I'd be given phenobarbital to quiet me down so I wouldn't get overly excited. Um, the first time I drank alcohol in a social setting with peers, I had all the cardinal markers right from the get-go. I loved it. I loved the way it made me feel. The taste wasn't so exciting, but the, the feeling was great. Um, and I had no off switch. I just kept right on drinking until it was gone. And I got into a whole lot of trouble. I felt like hell the next day, and the first thought I had was, where can we get some more? When can we do it again? And that's what alcohol was like in my life all through my teenage years, um, through college, uh, through the early years of uh, my adulthood. Um, I drank too much every time I drank. I got sick from drinking. I would stop drinking because I thought this was inappropriate or I didn't want to be like my mother or it wasn't the way ladies were supposed to drink or a wide variety of other reasons, uh, but I then would try it again with a new plan or a new scheme about how to control it. And it didn't work, so um, then we'd be off to the races again and then I'd stop again and whatever. Uh, I thought marijuana was a gift of the gods because uh, when I used marijuana with alcohol, I didn't get sick. So I could smoke dope and drink and I wouldn't vomit and embarrass myself in public by throwing up on somebody's floor uh, or all over their bathroom. So this was a great combination for a while. Uh, and then all sorts of other drugs came into the picture. This was the 70s and that was acceptable, so to speak. And uh, there were two parts of me. There was the perfect daughter, uh, nice lady, uh, wonderful, 
uh, follow the rules kind of person who was an overachiever and did everything right. And then there was the complete rebel when I was using drugs and alcohol who paid absolutely no attention to what authority figures expected and would go swimming in the reflecting pool in Washington uh, and just do wild and crazy things and then uh, think, well, it wasn't really me, it was the drugs. But I accumulated a whole list of things I felt guilty about and ashamed about that I didn't think about because I just had a tremendous capacity to sort of stuff those over to the side and lock them off into this little black box uh, marked uh, events happening when stoned. And, you know, they didn't count. Except they did count because on a dark night they would come back and haunt me and, you know, I'd feel bad about myself. And I kept trying to do other things to uh, sort of compensate for that. So uh, finally I decided I was just not really making it as a wild and crazy hippie, uh, so I probably ought to go to medical school. (laughs) And... uh, since my father had been a doctor and uh, I had always wanted his approval, that seemed like a pretty good idea. So uh, I had the grades for it and uh, I took the, un- the uh, courses I hadn't had and uh, got into George Washington where I had some uh, graduate connections and started medical school. And I thought, well, okay, this is going to be the answer because I won't be able to drink and take drugs here because medical school is hard and you have to buckle down and study hard, right? Um, And we had this uh, get acquainted mixer type party uh, right after the first day of registration and everything and at the party I met uh, 10 or 12 people who liked to get high and a couple of guys who liked to synthesize LSD in the biochem lab and you know, nothing changed. We were right back to where we started from and you know, most of the time I would be serious and studious and working hard. And then, you know, after exams or whatever, all bets were off and we'd be wild and crazy again. And uh, so, thankfully, I didn't have a whole lot of money. I had to go to medical school on a uh, public health service scholarship and I didn't have a much of a... Um, much uh, leeway for buying drugs, so I... Uh, that was a little bit of a control. And I did manage to get through medical school and do very well and got a good residency in psychiatry. And uh, it's funny, um, you were talking about, Steve, you were talking about disorientation. We actually had these monthly sessions in my first year in psychiatry that were called disorientation. <laughs> it was a, an opportunity for the new residents to get to know the senior faculty and the uh, senior residents, and uh, they happened at the training director's home, and they were called disorientation, and everybody was supposed to go over there and get drunk and drive home. I mean, it was bizarre. But... Uh, <laughs> And uh, I wasn't nearly the worst drinker in the bunch, so I thought I was okay, you know. But things were really starting to progress, and uh, the first year in psychiatry, I had to rotate through the emergency room, and the first time I ever was introduced to cocaine was by a senior resident in the ER who thought it would help me stay awake. 
so he gave me a few lines of cocaine to help me stay awake through the night. And fortunately, through my residency, I didn't have any money to buy that stuff, so I only used it when it was given to me. But after I finished my residency and went out and started working for the Public Health Service in Center City, Baltimore, I had a little more money, and I started to be able to buy it, and it really went downhill quickly from there. And I thought, I have to do something. And I went to talk to this psychiatrist in Baltimore who sort of specialized in addiction, and he said, you know, you really ought to go to treatment. And I said, well, that's not possible. I've got three kids, and my marriage had broken up at that point, and I'm like, you know, there's no way I can go to treatment. And he said, well, why don't you think about trying AA? And I knew a little bit about AA because I'd sent an awful lot of patients there, and we had to go to a few meetings as part of my residency. And I thought, well... I don't know about that. Besides which, cocaine is my problem. What am I doing in AA? It never had occurred to me that alcohol had been a problem pretty much throughout my life. But So it occurred to me that maybe I'd try NA. But I couldn't very well show up at an NA meeting in Baltimore. Somebody might recognize me, God forbid. So I borrowed my daughter's uh, leather jacket. with the fringes and the chains and snuck into a midnight N.A. meeting in Catonsville, which is a suburb of Baltimore. And it was kind of neat, you know. There were people there I could relate to, not their lifestyle, but their feelings. And I thought that was pretty cool. And I started going to N.A. meetings outside the city. And then it came to me in a flash that the answer was, I would stop using drugs and alcohol, and I would get a job in addiction. And that would be the solution, right? Because if I was working in an alcohol and drug treatment program, then, of course, I wouldn't use drugs, right? So I did that, and I was going to some meetings, but I really wasn't surrendering at all. I had no concept of what powerlessness was all about. And I was working in this drug and alcohol treatment program. And uh, ultimately, the people in that program 12-stepped me into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and helped me understand something about what powerlessness was all about. That happened after I had put together periods of time of abstinence and then used again and then more time and then used again and finally I called up this one woman and said would you be my sponsor and she said I don't know you might be too much for me but I'll give it a try because you are one of the most stubborn people I've ever had to deal with and you think you're in control of everything I said, what do you mean? I'm a nice person. I, I t- you know, I'm very kind and compassionate. And she said, that's total bullshit. You only do that so people won't notice that you think you're God. <laughs> and I said, well, okay, let's, let's, let's talk. <laughs> and so she really helped me work on the first step. And I knew that I couldn't do it by myself because I had tried over and over again. And we tried. We worked. We worked on the first step. And I didn't use. And I went to meetings. And I shared a little bit here and there. 
And I said, but I can't get this second step because I don't get this God stuff. I had been raised in pre-Vatican II Catholicism, and I hated religion, and I hated the idea of God, and I simply could not get it. And she would say, well, the only thing you need to know about God is that you're not God. And she had me read... Uh, Ernie Kay's book, Not God, and she had me uh, talk about all the ways I knew I wasn't God, and she talked about good orderly direction, you know, and eventually whenever I would hear the word God, I would just say, it's not you. So people would share at meetings about their higher power, and I would say, you just need a higher power that isn't you. And it began to make sense to me that the higher power could be the group of other people struggling to get sober together. And that as a group, we had more power than I ever had by myself. And that the people who were sober obviously had more power than I did because they were sober. And they were not just not using, they were on a joyous journey and I was miserable so they obviously had something I didn't have so I could follow them and think of them as a higher power and think of a higher power speaking to me through them and that was what allowed me to start this journey so that was my first attempt at the second step and the third step being willing to follow the people who had gotten onto the journey and seemed to be moving in the direction that I wanted to go in. I could follow them. I could be willing to follow them and follow directions from people. That was tough for me because I didn't have a whole lot of trust. The people who had been the authority figures in my life had let me down over and over again. And I didn't understand at that time, although I do now, that that, that was the whole issue for me is that I had tried all my life to get approval and understanding and acceptance from the people that I had looked up to, my parents, and they were simply incapable of giving it to me. But I thought it was because I wasn't good enough and I kept trying to be better and I could never be good enough. It wasn't because I wasn't good enough, it was because they were sick and couldn't give it to me. But I didn't know that at the time. We worked on steps, and when I got to step four, and I started with the inventory, I got crazier and crazier, and finally Pam, my sponsor, said, that's it, I've had it, I can't work with you anymore, I'm turning you over to a different sponsor. So I got a new sponsor, and I worked with that sponsor, and I I wrote one inventory, and the sponsor said, this is nothing but a confession. This isn't about a confession. I want you to read the book again, go back, do what it says, and do an inventory. So I did it again. That was the first fourth step I did. Did a fifth step with that sponsor and then started on with other steps. And we worked very hard for a couple of years. And then I decided to move away from Baltimore and... uh, my journey has proceeded since then. There have been a number of roadblocks that have come up during that time. I've had losses, important personal losses, uh, that have thrown me back, you know, and I've had to go back to steps one, two, and three. I lost my father, and I felt like I hadn't really finished making amends to my father and letting go of resentments to him. I lost 
other important people in my life. I lost a home. Uh, various things have happened in my life, but the steps have always worked for me in terms of getting me back on the path, sometimes quickly and sometimes slowly, and I haven't had to take a drink or a drug even though these roadblocks have popped up and temporarily made me feel like, what is the point of all this hard work? And my spiritual program has evolved with these roadblocks. And even though initially they have felt like, um, you know, landmines, like something has blown up in my face and I've gone through a period of thinking, you know, why is this happening to me? And uh, I must have screwed up or I must not be good enough or I must not have worked hard enough or some other such foolishness. I'm, I'm able eventually with help from other people in the program to step back and say, wait a minute, this has nothing to do with you, silly. It's about the way things are. And it's about an acceptance of the way things are. And the whole world isn't revolving around you, remember? I'm a perfect example of that alcoholic ego, the egomaniac with the inferiority complex, you know. I'm expecting everything to revolve around me because I'm the worst thing there ever was. It just makes no sense at all. But I flip right back there again when something comes up and stops me dead in my tracks. And I forget that that's not really what it's all about. It's really all about the way the world is moving forward and my response to it. And it's all about my attitude and my inside work, not what's really going on outside of me. So let me talk a little bit about the crisis that happened most recently in my life and how the steps helped me get through that, the most recent roadblock. And although I tend to think of it as happening a year ago, it actually started two years ago at at IDA, oddly enough, where some things got stirred up that really reawakened old trauma and some old post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms started to surface. Ironically, I had given a presentation about PTSD at that conference and uh, then I got... uh, Can you hear me? All right. The... uh, The PA system seems to be off. So just sort of let me wrap this up. Um, I won't talk about my roadblock. (laughs) Can you hear me? All right. Well, anyway, um, I, I got into this kind of thing with my PTSD, and I went back into therapy, and I did some hard work on that. But I really got drained and um, kind of out of, uh, ooh, there we go, (laughs) kind of out of energy. And I felt like my spiritual program really had sort of lost its zest. And my 
journey was lacking its joy. And uh, so I spent some time talking to my sponsor about how to get back the joy. And uh, I, I didn't have a whole lot of time to do service work, but I needed to get to more meetings and I needed to get more involved in AA. But I was living in this house that was across the river from where most of my meetings were, from where my job was, and it took a long time to commute back and forth. And my sponsor was saying, you need to move over to Williamsburg. And even though that house that you're living in is your dream house on the water, on the river, uh, it's really costing you more than you can afford in terms of the amount of time and energy it takes to have this riverfront house uh because you need to be putting your energy into your program. And uh, if you could do that, if you could move, you know, you'd probably be able to really feel a whole lot better about your program and about your life in general, and things would get better. And she was saying that, and I was kind of arguing with her. And my therapist started saying the same thing. You know, maybe you should consider moving to Williamsburg. And I'm like, oh, well, maybe. But that house is so cool. But I wasn't spending a whole lot of time in that house because it took so long to get home that I was staying too long at work. And, you know, so then my partner, Claire, started looking at new houses in Williamsburg because she thought it was a great idea, too. And I'm, like, dragging my feet and thinking it's too much trouble to sell the house and whatever. And then came uh, September 18th, Hurricane Isabel which brought a 12-foot storm surge that was simultaneous with the height of the eye of the hurricane and the highest winds, which brought water into the house three feet deep, washed away the, the doors on the front of the house, and washed all of our furniture right out into the river. Meanwhile, we were on the second floor of the house while the wind was blowing 80 miles an hour and the wind, the waves were coming into the first floor of the house. And talk about a spiritual awakening. <laughs> we were scared to death. And the house across the creek, right on the river across the creek, washed right into the river. And we just thought, you know, well, this is it. And uh, got kind of... Uh, resigned or accepting of the possibility that we weren't going to live through this whole thing. But thankfully, the hurricane moved on, the floodwaters went down, and we were left with the biggest mess you could possibly imagine, an uninhabitable house, no furniture on the first floor, no television, uh, no refrigerator, the kitchen was totally wrecked, etc., etc. You could just imagine. We were homeless. Um... It was the most powerless I've ever felt, maybe even more powerless than I felt back when I uh, finally got step one the first time. I always say I never surrendered. My position was overrun. And and this this was the same thing again, you know. My position was overrun by this damn storm. And my sponsor said, boy, it took me a lot to convince you to move to Williamsburg, didn't it? <laughs> And Claire had actually already picked out a house in Williamsburg that she wanted to buy. So by golly, she went ahead and bought the house in Williamsburg. And um, and we moved. But I was just sort of standing there feeling totally numb. 
I, I'm like, I went through this grief reaction that started out with numbness and denial where I, you know, called people up and signed papers and had trucks come and haul things away and just sort of put one foot in front of the other one and didn't have a clue where I was going. You know, and people came and picked me up and took I, two cars. Our cars were also washed away. And people came and picked me up and took me to meetings, and I sat in the meetings, and I said, hello, my name is Penny, I'm an alcoholic, I have no home, <laughs> thanks for your prayers, you know. Uh, but uh, it took me right back to where I started from, step one all over again. And a whole new level of finding a power greater than me. I had to find something more more meaningful at that point. I had to find something that could lift me out of this intense feeling of it was fear and helplessness. And I began reading spiritual readings again, which I hadn't been doing for a while. And one of the places where I really found a whole lot of help for the sadness and grief and anger that I was feeling at the time was reading the Dalai Lama. And I think in reading those readings, I was finally able to get some understanding on a gut level of something I'd been saying myself for years and telling my patients and my friends who were having trouble with the same thing um, about the difference between religion and spirituality because I had these residual resentments that I wasn't even aware of about religion that were really blocking me in my spiritual growth and this is what was getting in the way of my increasing my the depth of my of spirituality and my 11th step and um, I was sitting in meetings and asking the basic questions you know what am I supposed to do now where do I belong who am I where do I where do I go now? What do I do? Who are you when you lose all your stuff? And this is one of the things I read that had the most meaning to me. I know this isn't conference-approved literature, sorry. I believe there is an important distinction to be made between religion and spirituality. Religion I take to be concerned with belief in the claims of salvation of one faith tradition or another, an aspect of which is acceptance of some form of metaphysical or philosophical reality, including perhaps an idea of heaven or hell. Connected with this are religious teachings, dogma, ritual, prayers, and so on. Spirituality I take to be concerned with those qualities of the human spirit, such as love and compassion, patience, tolerance, forgiveness, contentment, a sense of responsibility, a sense of harmony, which bring happiness to both self and others. And over the last few months, as I have opened myself up to this new level of spirituality through the work I've been able to do with this 11th step and with this new approach to spirituality, 
I've not only been able to recover from this um, roadblock, what we in Baltimore used to call an AFCO. You know what an AFCO is, right? Another fucking growth opportunity. But at least some of the time I've been able to have these glimpses of peace of mind, which even though I've been sober since um, May 5th, 1986, I have really had a hard time grasping serenity and peace of mind. And finally, finally, it's starting to come to me in small bits and pieces some of the time when I can be still and in touch with this new level of spirituality. I couldn't find it in my old concepts of religion and I couldn't find it in the types of spiritual practice that I had tried earlier. But for some reason, this new Crisis, this new dramatic roadblock that came to me last fall has opened up a new level for me in terms of growing. And if it wasn't for and the people in this program who have spoken to me of their own experience and their own growth and their own dealing with tragedy, And if I hadn't sat with some of them and cried with some of them and been with them and been able to offer them compassion and patience and tolerance and help them to connect with this harmony of the universe, I don't think I would have ever found this. And now I feel like I'm finally beginning to find a little of it. And new challenges come along all the time. You know, I'm dealing with another one right now, and uh, there's always going to be something like that in your life. And as, as we get older, there are more of them. But that's okay, because that's part of the harmony of life. And the other, another thing that the um, that we hear about the difference between religion and spirituality, which has been attributed to many people. I, I think it was really um, Rabbi Abraham Tversky who might have said this first, was that the difference is that religion is for people who are afraid of going to hell and spirituality is for people who've been there. We've all been there. Even those of us who have this disease and those of us who love people who have this disease have all been to hell. We know what it's like. We're not afraid of that. We're afraid of going back there, perhaps, but we know we don't have to do that anymore if we do what we need to do on a day-by-day basis. I appreciate your letting me share. I'm sorry about the alarms, but, uh, you know, another roadblock, whatever. (laughs) One day at a time.